0: Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Chris Terracone. Season 8 of Jury Duty explores the trial of Alex Murdoch, a member of one of the most powerful families in South Carolina, who is accused of murdering his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie, with the purpose of covering up a multitude of alleged crimes including fraud and homicide. In our last episode, we concluded our look at the direct examination of Dylan Hightower, a digital data investigator for the South Carolina Solicitor's Office. In this installment, we begin our review of Defense Attorney Dick Harpoodlin's cross-examination of the witness. That's all coming up right after the break.
1: Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live.
0: It is the afternoon of February 2nd, 2023, day 7 of the trial of Alex Murdoch. As we concluded our last episode, Prosecutor John Conrad finished questioning Investigator Dylan Hightower about the retrieval of Maggie Murdoch's iPhone and about the extraction of data from the phones of other Murdoch family members. Today, we resume our look at the testimony of Investigator Hightower as defense attorney Dick Harpoodlian steps to the lectern. Harpoodlian begins his cross-examination by asking the witness to clarify for the jury why a representative of the South Carolina Solicitor's Office went to the crime scene in this
1: case. You sort of an alien concept to me, Solicitor's Office going to murder scenes. You go to a bunch of murder scenes.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, Among my other duties, I uh, am involved with the ATF. I'm a a task force officer with the ATF, uh, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms out of Charleston. Uh, So I do some proactive roles there as well as reactive roles in investigating crimes uh, that will ultimately be my case anyways and come into a court.
1: If they arrest somebody.
2: If they arrest somebody. In some cases when no arrests are made, yes, sir. When they're what? In some cases when no arrests are made, I would still arrive or respond to the crime scene.
1: And you took... uh Solicitor Duffy Stone with you, the, the chief prosecutor for um, the circuit, right?
2: We uh, rode in separate vehicles, but, yes, he was along with me, yes.
1: And I think I saw somewhere in evidence he actually took photographs that morning, did he not? Yes, sir, he did. Is that usual, that the solicitor go around doing evidentiary photos?
2: Not at all. Um, with the way his mind works, uh, he goes in and he, he thinks of every idea possible of what could possibly be an issue later on down the road if he prosecutes a case. Uh, and he wants to, to make sure that's all documented in his own book.
1: And so if he takes a picture and wants to use it in the prosecution, does he introduce it, authenticate it, and take the stand, authenticate it, and then come back down, he- ask himself questions? Okay. No, sir, he does not.
0: Harpoulian appears to suggest that the solicitor's process was unusual in the case of these murders. However, he quickly moves on to other questions about investigator Hightower's activities
1: on the day after the murders. We'll go on to something a little more productive. You went to a briefing that morning, you said, when you got there.
2: Yes, sir, I did at low Country.
1: Who was the briefing by?
2: There were probably 30, 40 plus investigators, officers, but multiple, essentially Sled, uh, Colleton County Sheriff's Office, a few Walterboro Police Department, I believe, um, and a few from my office.
1: I guess a br- when I think of a briefing, I think of someone standing in front of the room and saying, here's what we got. Was there one person speaking?
2: There were multiple people speaking, but that was the whole idea, was to get a better grasp as to what had occurred the night before.
1: I I guess, so who spoke?
2: Multiple agents, uh, multiple uh, responding officers uh, from the sheriff's office. I don't recall exactly who spoke.
1: How long Uh, did the briefing take?
2: Approximately 45 minutes, if I had to guess.
1: You have no specific memory of any specific person saying any specific thing?
2: There were multiple people speaking uh, going over the...
1: So the answer is no.
2: I do not recall exact people's names and exactly what they said, no, sir. you
1: recall any one person?
2: I know uh, Captain Ryan Neal spoke, uh, okay. Special Agent uh, David Owens spoke. I believe Captain uh, Jason Chapman with the Colton County Sheriff's Office spoke. There was a multitude of people talking about different things that they had seen the night before or the morning of it.
1: Had they? indicated to you, any one of those people, that um, they had a suspect, that they were focused on any particular person? No, sir. Did they have an explanation for anything? I mean, at that point, was there some theory about what happened?
2: Uh, At that point in time, we were trying to identify all the physical pieces of evidence as well as obtain and preserve all digital pieces of evidence to make sure we had a strong enough case moving forward.
1: Were you aware that the Carlton County Sheriff's Department had issued a statement to the public saying, um, there's nothing to be afraid of? people you know there's this is not something that you should view as a threat
2: no sir i'm not aware of that media police
1: you did not hear anything like that that one well let me ask you this if you had an active shooter at law would police take any proactive steps would they put up roadblocks or would they put out a statement look we've got two people brutally murdered and we don't know who did it so Doors locked. Be careful about if you see somebody uh, in the woods or, or walking along the road. I mean, we see these unfortunately much too often these days. But did the did
0: you object? Prosecutor John Conrad objects to Harpoodlian suggesting a narrative rather than asking the witness a question.
3: Miss Harpoulian seems to be testifying. Did we get
0: into a question? Harpoulian promptly gets to his question. Yeah, the
1: question is: Did you all do any? Did you see any? Any? Not you. Did you see any evidence of that? Or hear any evidence of that that morning?
2: Not that I recall, no, sir.
1: Not that I recall means? I don't
2: remember. I uh, okay. wasn't focused on what I what was on the media. Okay. But
1: but time. but did you see any roadblocks? No, sir, I did not. Did you see any anybody searching fields or uh, the woods around the place?
2: There were multiple tasks that were provided to each uh, investigator during the briefing, and multiple people went out and did their own thing um, of whatever they were tasked with. Uh, did you remember what those tasks were? Uh, following up with, with potential witnesses.
1: Right, but I'm talking about, did you see anybody going through the woods, armed, looking for a person or a person? No, sir, I did not. Okay. Did you, you didn't see any roadblocks, you didn't see any active search for a suspect, in, in the sense of somebody was armed, well, they knew at that point there were shotgun, spent shotgun shells and spent um, black blackout um, uh, uh, casings, right? You heard that?
2: Yes, sir. So
1: somebody either two people or one person with two guns was at-large at that point, as far as y'all were concerned?
2: Yes, sir. I mean, ideally.
1: Did any of those agents indicate during your briefing that they felt that there was somebody at-large that posed a danger to the community? Did you hear any of that?
2: I don't believe so.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze...
0: Defense Attorney Harpolyan pivots to asking Investigator Hightower about his observations of the details of the crime scene.
1: So, when you got there the next morning, um, there were no bodies, there was no physical evidence there. It was after all that had been removed.
2: All the bodies had been removed. Uh, all of the trash from the crime scene agents were stacked up. Uh, they were You could see some bloodstains uh, in the ground, and as well as some body matter uh, over towards the And and
1: I'm not going to belabor this and put these pictures up, but you had a drone up, right? Yes, sir, I did. And um, did you ever go up to the residence?
2: I did not uh, go all the way to the residence. No, sir.
1: Okay. And I don't see any pictures taken from the kennels that you took or under your direction up towards the residence. Are there any?
2: From the kennels looking back towards the residence. I
1: mean, but, but looking from the murder scene back up towards the residence.
2: Yes, sir, I did take those photographs.
1: That was during the day, not the night, correct?
2: Yes, sir, that is correct. Okay,
1: so you don't know what somebody from the house could see at night looking down towards the kennel? No, sir. Okay, I just want to make sure it was clear that you weren't testifying somebody up at the house at night would have an unobstructed view of where the bodies were found or the front of the kennel. You're not testifying to that, are you?
0: No, sir, I'm not. <laughs> Dick Harpoorlian then moves on to ask the witness about his retrieval of Maggie Murdoch's phone.
1: You indicated the distance from the shoulder to the road, shoulder of the road to the phone was about 15 to 20 feet? Yes, sir. And you took a number, did you take those pictures of the phone? Yes, sir, I did. Was there any other person there taking pictures other than you?
2: I was the only one with a camera, so I took the photographs.
1: Okay. And were you there the entire time until the phone was removed?
2: Yes, sir, I was. I stayed uh, right next to the phone until Jeff, uh, Special Agent Jeff Croft, and Special Agent Katie McAllister arrived on scene. They collected, took possession of the uh, cellular phone and placed it into an evidence bag.
1: Okay, and um, during that period of time, did any sort of forensic team come up and measure how far the phone was from the shoulder of the rubber?
2: No, sir, they did not.
1: Did anyone attempt to come up with a specific location for that phone in terms of measurement, a forensic assessment of where that phone was? No, sir.
0: Harper-Lian then presents an evidence bag to the witness so this uh, this is the
1: actual phone is that correct
0: based off of this case i remember seeing a camo
1: and an orange labeled case and somebody's written on this that's not you no sir you never touched the phone. i did not no, sir all right and this is a sim card what is a sim card
2: uh, it's stored within the device uh, it's a secondary form of storage
1: for a cellular device and so if you um Anything you do on the device is stored on the SIM code?
2: Not necessarily, no, sir.
1: What, what's stored on here?
2: It depends on the network, uh, depending on the provider that you utilize. Um, different providers uh, offer different resources for, uh, through your SIM card. Um, did
1: you ever examine the SIM card? I never examined anything on that phone, no, sir. You did a download but you didn't examine? Not on Maggie's. Oh, phone. you didn't do Maggie's phone. I'm that's great, correct. Sir. Okay, but somebody could look at the SIM card and get, perhaps, information that's not on the phone?
0: The same, yeah, in some scenarios, yes, sir. Okay. Harpudlian next enters into evidence a photograph taken of Maggie Murdoch's phone laying on the ground, and then shows the photo to
1: investigator Hightower. So that is exhibit number sorry, 228, and that's what you saw when you came on the phone, correct?
2: Yes, sir, that is.
1: And I think we see, and I think we pointed it out a little while ago, there's pieces of straw and other things around it, right? Yes, sir. So you would agree with me if someone had carefully walked over and placed this phone, there wouldn't be anything above it because everything that, that straw would be under it, correct? It's possible, yes, sir. Um, and in addition to that, did you um, did they, anybody forensically um, check the, the the area around it to see if there were footprints?
2: No, sir. I mean, it was heavily treed, heavily wooded, a lot of leaves there. You could not see any foot impressions around that phone.
1: Okay. A lot of leaves? Yes, sir. And so, is this sitting, I mean, when it's sitting there with the straw over it, is it sitting flat on the ground? Is it tilted? Is it, what, what, what do you remember? Or if you don't?
2: There was a slight tilt, uh, probably centimeters, uh, nothing major. Uh, nothing out of the ordinary around the phone, no holes, no pushed up uh, leaves or anything like that.
0: Harpoodlean displays another photo of Maggie Murdoch's phone taken from a different angle. Okay, so
1: um, again, that's another picture taken by you of the same phone in the same location, correct? Yes, sir, it is. And it's heavily wooded in that area, correct?
2: Uh, Right on the edge, yes, sir.
1: And it's uh, almost a thicket where you found this, right? There are bushes around it?
2: No bushes. There were a lot of trees.
1: A lot of trees. And underbrush?
2: And underbrush, yes, sir.
1: Okay. So nobody actually took measurements of where this was found. No one actually measured from the the road, nor did they measure... um, no way to figure out exactly, if you had to go back today and find the spot, could you find it? The exact spot?
2: Uh, within a couple of feet, yes sir, I probably could, based off the angles of photographs that were originally taken.
1: Okay, but you couldn't give us the exact spot? Right? I
2: couldn't give you an exact step or step uh, from the actual device to where Moselle Road was.
0: Harpoodlian appears to use the next photograph in his presentation to try to sow doubt in the minds of the jurors as to how Maggie's phone ended
1: up in the spot where it was discovered. Okay, this is exhibit number 232. And that's a vehicle on the same side of the road as where the phone was found. Is that correct?
2: Yes, sir. That is correct.
1: And so that car window that we see in this photo, the driver's side window would be 15 to 20 feet from where that phone was, correct?
2: I would add a few more feet just because of the roadway. Uh,
1: 25 to 30 feet? Fair?
2: That would be fair, yes, sir.
1: But nobody measured it, so we don't.
2: Reserve. No one measured it, no, sir. Okay.
1: And so if that car was going towards Almeida, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, sir. It would be on the other side of the road, right?
2: Uh, on the right lane of the road, yes. He, I mean,
1: it'd be on the right. But Here it's improperly parked, correct?
2: Uh, sure.
1: I mean, the driver's window is, I mean, if there's a car coming the other way, they'd head on, would they not?
2: That is, yes.
1: Okay, that's the point. You I
2: would make. be operating the, the vehicle on the right side of the road, or left in that image.
1: Okay, so if someone were driving towards Almeida on this road, they wanted to get rid of that phone, they would either have to throw it 40 feet out the driver's side window or pull over, as this car has, and throw it out, correct?
2: It's a series of things that could have happened, the reasons why that phone got there, but it's possible.
1: Just assume with me for a second that if they want to get rid of that phone by throwing it out the window, they could either throw it from their lane of traffic if they're going towards Elmina or they can pull over like that and throw it out. It'd be easier, when I say easier, it'd be a much tougher toss. That far in from if they never left their lane to traffic, correct? I guess it depends
2: on who's throwing it. It's me. a multitude me. of it's things. Me, it'd
1: be me, and I, I don't throw very well.
2: Well, I do, so I would I would I could 100 percent make that throw. From you could view.
1: throw it from okay, so we wouldn't even have to change lanes. You just throw it out the window. Yes, sir, 100. percent And you would um, throw it overhanded or underhand.
2: I'd throw it sideways, flick Side, it
1: sideways. Okay. So there's no way to tell. We don't know if somebody threw it out. They I mean, out of the driver's side window. Are you throwing it with your left hand or right hand out the driver's side window? I mean, you said you could toss it pretty fast.
2: I would throw it with my left hand from the driver's side and could easily land it to where it actually was found and located in the the woods.
1: But you still, are you right-handed or left-handed? I'm right-handed, yes, sir. But you could still throw it with your left hand with that much power?
0: Yes, sir. 100%. 100%. Dick Harpoulian moves on to asking investigator Hightower about how the phone was handled once it was retrieved. Specifically, he asks questions related to the preservation of data on the phone.
1: Okay, now let me ask you this. When you found it, you wanted to put it, or somebody with you wanted to put it in airplane mode, right?
2: Yes, sir. I wanted it to be placed in airplane mode to preserve its confidence.
1: Because in airplane mode, less chance of any data being overridden, right? That is correct, yes, sir. Now, that doesn't prevent all data from being overridden, but most data, correct? A lot,
2: uh, 99%, I would say, uh, to prevent any, any issue with the phone.
1: Does it prevent GPS data from being overridden?
2: From another device? No. I mean, just internally,
1: just yes. automatically internally, deleting itself? Yes. I've never seen that happen. But you don't know whether it's going
2: to happen at all? Presumably, no.
1: So you need to put in airplane mode to prevent anything from being overridden, right?
2: Any outside tampering from another device that had access to its iCloud information.
1: You agents with you, I want to put in airplane mode, right? Yes, sir. I did. And to do that, you have to have, you have to be able to open it. You need the passcode. No, sir. You do not. do Not on an iPhone, no, sir. You can put it on um, airplane mode without, yes, sir, opening it. He's well, it, somebody, did, what did you need the passcode for? Because somebody called, got the passcode.
2: We did not get the passcode at that point in time. No one knew we had located the phone, so there's no reason to ask for the passcode if we didn't have it. Later on, we received the passcode, but not at that point. I was not present. Uh, I did not analyze the device. So, was it at
1: the at the scene, or was it somewhere else?
2: I do not recall. I was not there.
1: So, no one um, told you that Alex Murdoch provided Maggie.
2: No sir, no one told me that.
1: Now, if someone had the passcode, uh, they could go in that phone and eliminate, delete text messages, phone calls, just about any piece of data that's captured there. Correct. Even apps, you can delete those. Correct. They could have, but once the full file
2: system extraction was done uh, by Lieutenant Britt Dove, we no, no, I'm, I'm, You my
1: question, I'm sorry. If you had that phone, and obviously uh, Maggie Murdoch had been murdered, somebody threw it on the side of the road, and during that period of time after her murder, before it was thrown on the side of the road, if you had the passcode, right, Yes. open sir. it, without the passcode, typically you can't open it, correct? No, sir. You agree with me? I do, yes, sir. Okay, I'm sorry. So if you had that passcode, you could open it, delete photos, delete phone messages, delete text, delete whatever you want,
2: correct? Yes, sir.
1: And when you um, found that phone, it was locked?
2: Yes, sir, it was. Okay.
1: And um, was there any evidence that you saw that anything had been deleted by that from that phone in any of your, after your download extraction?
2: Again, I did not download uh, or extract the the contents of the device. Uh, The only thing that I saw was the home screen and made sure that the airplane mode was applied at that point, Uh, and then it was placed into an evidence bag. We never got past that lock screen or home screen that allows us to turn on airplane mode. Obviously, the device was on because we were able to locate it through my iPhone, and the battery level was significantly low.
1: was significantly low.
0: Yes, sir, it was. With that, Dick Harpulian concludes his cross-examination of the witness and Prosecutor John Conrad rises for a brief redirect. We talked about the call logs
3: uh, and so you downloaded uh, Alex's phone on June 10th, correct? Yes, sir, that is correct. Three days after the murder, correct? Yes, sir. Uh, and
0: yeah. <clears throat> Harpoolian rises to object that the prosecutor's question was outside the areas that he covered in his cross-examination.
1: I never mentioned Alex's phone, not once.
0: Rather than respond to the defense's objection, prosecutor Conrad opts to move on in his questioning.
3: At some point uh, after you were involved in this investigation, you're informed by Solicitor Stone, you're informed by Solicitor Stone to uh, to stop, correct? Yes, sir. Right. And you recall approximately when Solicitor
0: Stone Dick Carpuillian again objects on the grounds that Prosecutor Conrad's question is not in response to any of the matters raised by the defense counsel asked during his cross-examination of the witness. Judge Newman sustains the objection, and again Prosecutor Conrad moves on in his questioning. This time, careful to frame his inquiry into the context of the defense attorney's questions.
3: And Ms. Carpuillian asked about uh, the crime scene and its state when you got out there, correct? Yes, sir, he did. All right. Uh, did you notice any vandalism? No, sir, not at all. Did you notice, uh, were you informed or did you notice anything missing? Not.
1: I didn't know it was missing. Maybe the witness knows.
3: Overall, I knew Maggie's phone was missing and that's it. Okay. okay. Did you notice any other any vandalism or anything? No, sir, none at all. Okay, all right. Uh, and when it comes to Maggie's phone, return model, are you aware whether uh, that can be placed in airplane mode, Without the unlock code being entered while the phone is locked?
2: You can place the phone that phone in airplane mode while it's locked, yes. Okay.
3: So you don't need a code to just simply put it in airplane mode, correct? No sir, no. All right. And uh, did anybody manipulate anything any data on that phone in your presence?
0: No, no sir, not at all. Okay, that's perfect. And with the end of investigator Dylan Hightower's testimony, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Alex Murdoch. Please join us on our next installment as we review the testimony of SLED Special Agent Katie McAllister, and then continue our look at the in-camera hearing over the admissibility of testimony regarding the defendant's financial crimes. Also, check out the Crime Story podcast, Night Raid, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced, written, and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.